Thank you, Kendall. Um, we're glad you are here tonight. As we say every week, RUF is for anybody and everybody, regardless of where you find yourself uh, on the spiritual spectrum, uh, on just like the emotional stability, or just like whether you find yourself lonely, looking for friends, or you feel like you're the most popular person at Ole Miss, we're for you. And we're excited you are here. I, uh, gosh, I wanted to start tonight with the Sixth Commandment. By saying, by like having a corny, like, tonight we're going to talk about matters of life and death. But I had some students shoot it down and kind of shame me for it, so didn't land. I get it. They were right. All right. Um, anyway, I don't know if many of y'all have recently been watching this HBO series, The Last of Us. I've been watching it, and if you aren't caught up or if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's basically this post-apocalyptic show where everybody in the world, basically, uh, almost, has been infected by this fungus that overtakes people, turns them into zombies like every great show, and they try to eat everybody. But there's like these few little kind of hub towns where people have been able to hide out. And the story of The Last of Us is basically 30 years after all of these infected people, uh, really like the disease hit. The story is that this guy, this man, and this girl are kind of like trekking across the U.S., trying to stay safe, trying to stay secure, but also trying to survive and hopefully find a cure for this disease. And these types of post-apocalyptic shows, I don't know uh, if y'all have been into them, whether it's The Walking Dead or stuff like that, they always bring up really uh, interesting thoughts. Because I think what these shows kind of push, or at least one agenda they push, is they force the question for us, What would you be if all of the things that make you secure, your family, your community, your accomplishments, your possessions, what would you be if all of those things went away? Who would you actually reveal yourself to be? And in The Last of Us, I think we find some pretty uncomfortable answers. These upstanding citizens reveal themselves as murderers or people that are ultimately selfish, really selfish. That at our core... Us, just like them, are often not as loving and as caring and as empathetic towards others as we really liken ourselves to be. We just re- we're just really good at acting like it because we have all this security around us. That's what these shows force us. And I think that's the conversation that the sixth commandment forces on us, too, that you shall not murder. That it's not just don't take a physical life. That's quite obvious. But it goes deeper than that. So we're going to look at the kind of complexity of this command by three different points. First, the context of the command, the complexity of the command, and then the crisis of the command. So I want to look at it in those three contexts. So the context of the command. The struggle with a command like this, I think for most of us, is that it seems so easy to follow that we almost disregard it. We almost just cast it by the side, cast it by the wayside and say, like, I've got at least I've got this one covered. And for most of all, like for all of human history, most people that argue, you know, that there's a basic common good morality that all humans have would argue that the sixth commandment is what makes the most sense. That all people across all religions, across all societies, for the most part, agree that murder is bad. And yet, if we ask ourselves the question, why? Why is murder bad? Most people don't really have an answer. And for us tonight, I want to look at our answer. I want to figure out, okay, God outlaws murder, but why? What is he trying to communicate about himself? What is he trying to communicate to us about the ethics of this case? 
And what I find, or what I think we find with this command is that God is against murder because he is for life. He is for flourishing. He is for creation. God outlaws murder not because he thinks it's bad, but because he thinks life is good. Just think about the Bible as it starts. Genesis 1. We get this amazing picture of God pouring out life. He creates all these things. He creates the world, ultimately crowning the world with his prized creation of humanity. And most scholars would say that Genesis 1 is actually written structurally like a poem. And you could even argue that God is singing. God is creating beauty as he's creating life. Meaning he doesn't, isn't just the source of life, he actually celebrates life. He loves it. And when he creates man and woman, the crown of his creation, the thing he takes the most joy in, he then creates us in the image of himself. That we are made in God's image. And what that means is that as we live, and as we live among one another, among creation, what we're supposed to do is then communicate to creation, to others, exactly who this God is. And what that means is that we should be for life, pro-life. We should be celebrating life. If you look in Genesis 2, just the chapter right after Genesis 1, we see Adam finds Eve. Eve is made from Adam. And the first life that Adam sees in Eve, Adam can't help but celebrate over it. He sings. He says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. God's prohibition of murder is much deeper than, hey, y'all get along. Y'all don't kill each other. It's, hey, as his image bearers, we should reflect this God who is for life, who celebrates, whose greatest joy is to create and sustain life. In fact, that's the whole story of the Bible, y'all. The Bible is one big story about how God, in the midst of this death and sin and destruction and dehumanization that we inflict on each other, is restoring life back to the, the world and the people that he loves. When sin enters the world in Genesis 3, death enters the world. Before sin, there was no death. And as sin enters the world, immediately what we see the result of that is, in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, death. Brother kills brother. And God prohibiting, prohibiting murder is prohibiting sin to have victory over his creation. In fact, if you look at the whole book of Exodus... The whole book of Exodus is kind of this mini story about what the whole Bible is about. Russ Whitfield, a pastor in Washington, D.C., helped me on this. He says this. He says, Pharaoh is the embodiment of the fall. He is death by his enslavement of the Israelites, dehumanization, oppression, execution of those people. And when God liberated his people from Pharaoh, what he was doing was bringing them from life or from death to life. This is just a shadow of the story that we ultimately see fulfilled in Jesus, isn't it? Where God sends his only son to free us from the death that is our guilt, that is our shame, that is our physical death, that is our dehumanization of each other, our oppression of others. Jesus comes in and breathes life into our souls. He makes dead men alive. Jesus' one agenda is that he has come to over, overcome death. And I want y'all to see that the context of this command is that God hates death and he loves life. And as you apply that to yourself, you're like, okay, well, what does that mean for me? I think it means one thing, that God is pro you. That as much as you love to think you're worthless, 
You don't have any dignity. You are the sum total of your worst mistakes. You are just, you know, not as cool as you want to be. You're not as good as that other person. That you are a disappointment to your parents. That you really don't see any value that you add to this community or this, uh, even this ministry. What God is saying in Jesus Christ, and even in this command, is that that is a lie. According to him, you have divine significance. So much so that he has placed his image on you and he has placed his son with the task of redeeming you. But I think there's also another scary part about this. Because if God is pro-you, that also means he's pro-them. And when I say them, that means the people that you think aren't worthy of his love. That aren't worthy of full value, full dignity, full worth. And that kind of gets us to our second point, the complexity of this command. The complexity of this command. One pastor I read said this. He said, don't do what the Pharisees do with this command. Saying this is just for people with a violence problem. The Pharisees, the religious elite in Jesus' time, often read the Bible uh, like I used to read my class syllabus. So when I read a class syllabus, I wasn't looking at how my professor really was like inviting me to learn and to flourish and to like improve. I read a class syllabus with the intention of what can I get away with? Like what is the lowest amount of effort I can put in and still get the desired grade I want? Do they take attendance? Is that the first thing I look for still? Do they take attendance? What percentage is homework? Do they grade on a scale? It's a big question, especially for an accounting major like myself. So when the Pharisees read, and we often read, the commandments like do not murder, they don't read it as an invitation to be pro-life in every facet. What they do is they say, look, lowest common denominator, I don't physically hurt anybody or harm anybody. Okay, I got an A. Check. Also, are y'all checking the weather? I, uh, we're good? Tanner, you got, okay. We got a, okay. Um, but Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't let us off that easy. Because like a professor who really cares for us would push, will actually push us to use more of our brains than just getting by. Our God loves us enough to push us to deeper and deeper love to a deeper and deeper flourishing in life. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus says this. He says, you have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is always kind of a sobering person to be around um, because he pushes us past just getting by. He forces us, he forces us to actually engage with the commandment as God really wanted it. Are you really as pro-life, pro-flourishing of others as you are called to be as the image of God in this world? The word that Jesus uses in this passage, uh, Matthew 5, he says, "If, if you are angry, that is terrifying angry and then the lightning goes Uh, okay if you're angry with your brother that's the Aramaic word for raka and what it means is not hey if you it, it doesn't just mean like if you are hateful towards somebody if you're just a jerk if you're a bully what it means is are you um that you actually talk to people like they're lesser than 
that you not only hate, but you see people as inferior. You hold people in contempt. And practicing this anger or this attitude of hatred towards our brother, it can look very obvious in some ways. So it can look like, you know, devaluing and discarding the unborn. That's not respecting life. It can look like degrading and disenfranchising people based on their race. It can look like making caricatures and name-calling people who are across the political aisle or across the political opinions than you. It can look like gossiping about a friend, intentionally cutting down their reputation just to feel a little bit better about yourself. It can be excluding or making one friend in your group the butt of every joke just because you take a little bit of sinister pleasure in it. There are obvious ways that we can commit this anger, this resentment, this superiority complex, but there are also more subtle ways. This looks like, this attitude looks like the guy who's in what he thinks is the good Greek house. And when he walks around, he kind of prides himself based on his letters versus another person's letters. I had a guy, legitimately, when I went to a party at Alabama my freshman year, tell me he wouldn't shake my hand because I wasn't old row. That is what Jesus is talking about. I got over it, promise. Um, it's the ingratitude and the indifference we have towards workers in our service industry. Your, your server in the union, the custodial workers that work around your campus or in your fraternity or sorority house. We don't see them as people. We don't acknowledge them as people. It could be the way you talk about and the way you even kind of stick your nose up at people who struggle with gender dysphoria or have a different sexual ethic than the biblical sexual ethic and how we just outcast them as gross and inhumane and degrade them with our speech. Look, we know in our heart we are much more harsh than Jesus is, don't we? We tend to cancel people that Jesus is actually seeking to redeem. And it even boils over into our spiritual life, doesn't it? C.S. Lewis has this chapter in the Screwtape Letters, his little fictional diary of a demon writing to another demon on how to convince this guy to walk away from the faith. And in chapter 24, if you want to look it up, if you have that book, he writes uh, to this other demon that the guy, his patient, has now joined or has now he's got a girlfriend. He's got a girlfriend who is a really good, solid Christian, and she kind of has these elite Christian friends. And now this guy who was a recently converted guy is, uh, is now in like this elite Christian group. He feels like he's on the in crowd. And what this demon writes to the other demon that's trying to manipulate this guy is he says, you need to start convincing him and start feeding him the strongest and most beautiful vice, spiritual pride. He tempts him by saying, you should tell this guy or you should try to convince this guy that now that he's in the in group, He's better that he says, here's the quote. He says, you must make him feel that he is finding his own level, that these people that he's around now are his sort of people and coming among them. He has come home and leaving all those other spiritual, spiritually disenfranchised, spiritually messy people behind. That was a good thing because he's better than them anyway. If you're feeling the sting of this command, I think you're reading it right. Because I think this is what Jesus is trying to push us towards. He's trying to reveal that the fruit of our lives often isn't the love and the image bearing that we were really called to. And that we really fall short of the standard that God has placed on us. 
But we can't just be content to say, okay, there's bad fruit in our lives. We, we, we've identified how we are often more hateful than we would really like to think of ourselves as. We must ask why. Why are you more hateful? Why am I more hateful? Why do you commit this sin? James 4 is helpful in this. I'll read verse 1 and 2 of James 4. James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. What James is saying there is your desire to put others down is coming from a sense that you don't have what you need. In other words, in our sense of lack, whether we don't lack enough confidence, security, identity, accomplishments, whatever, that is the motivation that then leads us out to then try to put other people down. That causes these fights and divisions and dehumanization of others. This is what causes Cain to kill Abel. And this is what causes us not to be our brother's keeper, but to think our brother is keeping us from what we really need in life, what we really lack in life. And so the sixth commandment, as we move to the last point, leaves us in this crisis. We see the standard of God's love. We see we're called to be his image bearers. And yet we also see how, fall, how far we fall short. And I think we find ourselves in two different crises here. How do you say that? Crises? Crises is? Just, just add like a bunch of S's to it. It works out. First, I think we see ourselves in a crisis of need. I just, I just finished talking about that. Are you tracking the weather? Okay. We got an aspiring meteorologist in here, so I feel, I feel okay. Um, there's a long story behind my fear of all this stuff, but we won't get into that tonight. So we find ourselves in a crisis of need. Meaning, I just talked about this, that we need, we lack, whether it's confidence, identity, security. And so that's what motivates us to tear others down. And so the crisis is, how do we find what we need to where we're so secure and so safe in who we are that we don't have to put others down in order to be okay with ourselves? That we don't have to commit figurative murder on people in order to navigate this life. But we also find ourselves in another crisis. It's a crisis of judgment. Four times, four times in the span of two verses in Matthew 5, when Jesus talks about and kind of clarifies this command, he threatens judgment. He says that we are liable. If we commit these sins, we are liable to a judgment. We're going to have to, to pay up as we commit these sins. And what we need to figure out here is, well, that sounds a little harsh. I thought I came to hear about grace. It sounds kind of anti-gospel. What is Jesus getting at here about God's judgment? What I think we need to understand is, look, God's judgment, Jesus's judgment, his harshness about how we are treating each other is actually a function of his pro-life character. Because God is so pro-life, he can't stand to watch what he loves and what he desires to flourish be degraded, be dehumanized, be destructed. I heard it put this way, Russ Whitfield again, God is against the world for the sake of the world. Just like any good parent punishes their kid when their worst impulses are revealed. One, for the sake of that other person, so that they don't bear the brunt of what our kid could do to them. But also for our own kid, because they need to know that flourishing in life is not found in inflicting harm and pain on others. Judgment 
is an act of God's love. In other words, you won't see that Jesus is truly for you until you see that he's against the worst impulses in you. That he cares enough about you to actually call you to repentance. So what do we do about these crises we find ourselves in? The crisis of need and the crisis of judgment. Where do we go? And of course, as we're always going to end, we're going to end on the gospel. Because it's when we get to, to an end to ourselves, a dead end, where we find the doorway to our answer, the gospel, the, point, the cross that points us to the hope that we have in both of these crises. In the crisis of need, the gospel addresses that directly. Jesus, in his life and death, subjected himself to the worst fears that we have. Those fears that we will be completely needy as we're rejected, scorned by others, abandoned. That's what Jesus became on the cross. He was crucified outside the city gates. You're afraid of not being in the in crowd? Jesus was crucified to signify that he is in the out group. He is outside the crowd that we all want to be in. He was in the company of criminals and rejects and outcasts. He was dead on the soil of the city dump. And what Jesus is showing us here, just in the sheer image of the cross, is that he has taken on our greatest fears so that we don't have to. And in return, he has actually gifted us union with the Father. That he has given us access to the love we all desire, the love that we want from others but we really need to have fulfilled in God. He has given us access to that. He has faced your worst fear and he has given you your greatest joy. But at the same time, he has faced our other crisis too. This crisis of judgment. We know how he does this, don't we? That our sins were laid upon him. We sang that just a second ago. Scott Sherman said, when it comes to these judgment texts, that if we are in Christ, we are able to settle out of court. That when Jesus looks at us, when God looks at us, he is not inviting us to take our record up to him and try to minimize all of the bad stuff that we did. All of the ways we gossiped or all the ways we tore others down or all the ways we weren't grateful or treated others as inferior. He's not asking us to settle our account. Jesus himself takes our debt. Jesus himself exonerates us. And I think this is really kind of the crux of the gospel. What I want us to get out of this, that Jesus became death to give us life, means that he came to supply our need and to also take our judgment. And I think this type of love that we find in Jesus should not only like, give us peace, that we aren't going to be the sum total of all the bad things we've done to everybody, that's not the gospel. Grace says that you are the sum total of what Jesus did for you. But at the same time, it also says that there's a greater love than the shallow love that we often show towards others. There's a greater love, a greater kingdom, a greater people that Jesus is inviting you to that aren't navigated by their own insecurities. Eugene Peterson, and I'll close with this, Eugene Peterson in his memoir, The Pastor, tells this story about Growing up in a rural town in Montana, and his dad was the butcher, the butcher of that town. He had his own butcher shop, and so Eugene grew up working at the butcher shop. And since it was a small town, it was the, kind of the only place you could buy meat there, everyone in town would come there to buy meat. Everyone, including the really reprehensible people 
in that town. The, the prostitutes would come in. And Eugene talks about how in town, these people were known as whores. They were known as tramps. But when they walked in the butcher shop, something changed. He says this. He says, when these women entered our premises, they were treated with the dignity of their Christian names. I remember three of them, Mary, Grace, and Veronica. When they left with their purchases, there was no gossipy moralism trailing in their wake. They were in a safe place when they were among us. I think that's a beautiful picture of what it looks like to walk in to the presence of Jesus too. That because of the death that he paid on the cross, you can be identified as your Christian name. That he is ready to receive you, not only receive you, but celebrate you. Because he loves when you are restored to life. But at the same time, I think the butcher shop is also a picture of what God's people can and have been called to be. We're the rejects, the outcasts, the people that the, out there that think we think of them as reprehensible can come in and actually be restored their dignity, restored their value, restored their worth. Because God is so pro you, that means we can be so pro them and that they can learn about this God who loves them in the same way he loves you. That's the invitation that we have tonight. So let me pray for us.